Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi. We love bringing you science stories on our podcast, and one of the ways we bring it to you for free is by running advertising. But in order for us to continue doing that, we're going to need some help. If you'd like to support us, please go to podsurvey.com collider and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you a little better and show our advertisers just what an amazing bunch you are. Even if you've taken one of our listener surveys before, this one is new and different, so we'd love it if you would take it again. Also, once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Also, again, your answers are anonymous. So again, if you'd like to help us out, go to podsurvey.com slash collider. That's C-O-L-L-I-D-E-R. Thanks. A science story, huh? It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we're bringing you two stories about predators, one man's attempt to confront his fear of sharks, and an attorney dealing with the complicated psychology surrounding sex offenders. Our first story this week is from Drew Prohaska. It was recorded in October 2016 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme was fear. So growing up, I had these like really liberal filmmaker parents, you know, and um, because of this, I was exposed to a lot of movies at a very young age that I probably shouldn't have been, you know, and um, like uh, the first one I recall was a made for TV movie in the mid 80s called Adam. Does anybody remember this? It was about a little boy who was abducted from a shopping mall and murdered. And uh, yeah, right. And uh, and 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 like you know, like basically, my mom turned to me after this movie was over and was like, "I just want you to know that if you don't get home before dark every night, um, someone is going to murder you and chop you up." <laughs> and, and 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 you know, I really believe this. But the movie that really messed me up as a little boy was Jaws, and I saw Jaws when I was seven years old. And when I saw that scene with the little boy on the rubber raft, just who just turned into this like fountain of gore. Like I knew that I was gonna get eaten by a shark, you know. Like, 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 like I didn't need anybody to tell me my fortune. I, I knew, I knew I was gonna be chewed to death by something hideous with gills, you know. And 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 it's an irrational fear. But I am like my friends will tell you this. I like irrational fear is the is the force that binds my atoms together, you know. 
And, and, and it wasn't just sharks. It was like everything under the ocean. Like, like the ocean just seemed like this hellscape to me of like things with tentacles and beaks and, and like spines like filled with poison, you know? And I would have I gladly like boiled it if I had the means, you know? But like being afraid of the ocean isn't such an easy thing when you have... Um, two parents who are avid sailors. You have a brother who is a sea captain and a scuba instructor, a sister who teaches marine biology and builds submersible robots in her spare time for fun, you know? And, and uh, so I have this family of, uh, of, of Ahabs and Nemos and Cousteaus, and I'm the chicken of the sea. So, um, <laughs> but... Um, but you can't uh, you can't have these kinds of uh, irrational fears and and as you grow older and still call yourself a man, you know. And I'm a I'm a grown ass man, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and um and 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 so every year I I, uh, I I take a trip to another country and I try to conf- uh, confront one of these fears. And so four years ago I booked a trip to Cape Town, South Africa, because if you've ever watched the awesome Air Jaws documentary during Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, you'll know that in Cape Town, South Africa, great white sharks can fly. <laughs> so, um, like, in the panicky weeks, like, uh, uh, building up to the trip, I, I, um, I, st- I just start Googling, like, sh- shark statistics. Like, how, how many people every year are, are killed by a great white shark? And, 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 and the answer is, um, is uh, one. One person every year is killed by a great white shark. Like, that's a really eerie number, you know? And I'm like, I'm going in May. Like, has it happened yet, you know? <laughs> like, like, and, 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 like, and, like, ever since I was a, a little boy, like, I was told that, like, uh, if, if you're ever attacked by a, a shark, what you're supposed to do is punch him in the nose. Um, but apparently that's not true anymore. Apparently that just really pisses him off, you know? So, like, what you're supposed to do is, like, if, if, you, if you're found in, like, the mouth of a great white shark, you're supposed to, like, gouge at their eyes with your thumbs. Like, really? Come on, you know? So I just decided if I was ever uh, attacked by a great white shark, I would just soil myself with such volume that they just spit me out and swimmed off in, in search of like less pathetic prey, you know? So um, when I get to South Africa, I, I, I book a trip on the exact same boat that was in the Air Jaws documentary. And the reason I did this was because the, the, uh, the crew of this boat devised this method to get the great white sharks to breach out of the water. And they do this by uh, towing a foam rubber seal behind the boat. Right, and um, the reason why uh, uh, great white sharks uh, jump out of the water uh, in in in, in uh, South Africa uh, specifically is because in in the Cape Town Bay there's a, there's an island with the very uninspired name of Seal Island, and it, it is covered with thousands and thousands of seals. Now a seal can outmaneuver a great white shark. So what the great white sharks do is they swim to really great depths in the bay, and they wait for a, a herd. I think a herd murder. Uh, 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 a school of, of uh, I should have researched that of, of, of seals to, to, to swim above them and um, they wait for a, a straggling seal uh, to lag behind them and then what they do is they launch towards that seal with such velocity that their entire bodies like leave the water and, and if you watch any of these documentaries it's always the same like you hear like this drum beat like and you see the seal just sort of darting through the water for dear life and 
bum, 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 bum. And then you see this mouth like emerge from the water with like teeth like broken glass and these eyes just sort of roll back inside this shark's head and your heart just starts going bum, 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 bum. And, 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 and the entire shark's body leaves the water and this enormous tail whips around and you see this expression on the seal's face like no! As two and a half tons of gray white shark just bear down on it with its teeth. And I saw this. I got to see this stand at sunrise, standing on the deck of the Air Jaws boat. And it looked like this. Bloop. It, it was like a half second. And, 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 uh, and, and, and I turned to the captain of the boat and I'm like, I'm like, hey man, like, aren't you ever afraid that like, one, that the, one of these sharks is going to jump out of the water and, and, and land in the cockpit. And he's like, mate, that's my biggest fear. He's like, I can't do a South African accent. So, uh, and, 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 and he's, like, he's like, it happened like three years ago on this German boat. This great white jumps out of the water, lands in the cockpit of this boat and crushes this guy's legs. And I was like, oh my God. And he's like, right? And I'm like, but what a badass way to lose your legs. You know? And, 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 then, um, and then like, it's like a while before we see another great white and the captain, he, 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 he throttles down the engine to this slow growl. And then, um, and they start uh, lowering the shark cage into the water, and they bring out this. The deckhands bring out this cooler filled with chum, just guts and gore. And they they lift this uh, tuna head out of the cooler, and they pluck its eyes out with a knife. And they take a rope, and they thread the rope through the eye sockets, and they throw this tuna head out into the water. And it's not long before the first dorsal fin appears. And there, circling the boat, is Jaws. And then another dorsal fin appears. It's Jaws too. <laughs> and the captain, the captain, he turns to us and he says, you guys have no idea how lucky you are. He said, we've actually been doing these tours all spring and this is the first time this spring that the sharks have actually come up to the boat. And I'm thinking, it's because they know I'm here, you know? And everybody's getting their scuba gear on and I'm, I start, I just, I find the exact center of the boat. And, and I, just sta- I just stand in it. And, and, and I just, I can't move and I can't breathe. And I, I, I can't, I just can't, I can't do anything. And the captain uh, sees this and he comes up to me and he says, he says, are you all right, mate? And I said, I said, um, I said, no, I'm, I'm really not okay. And he says, what are you afraid of? And I said, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there's two fucking great white sharks circling this boat right now. And, 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 and these were 14-footers. These were big great whites. And, and, um, and, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, he says, that there, that right there, you're afraid of that? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, mate, he says, that's just Tim. <laughs> And he points to the other shark and he goes, that there? That's just Sally. (laughs) (laughs) And he just gives these sharks names and and all of the fear that was in my body just sort of drains out of my toes at once, you know? And and I take a breath. 
And I, I put the scuba gear on, and I, I walk to the edge of the boat, and I step into the shark cage. And for a moment, there's just bubbles and this red cloud of chum. And then Tim, Tim the shark, blasts by the cage like a subway car. He is so close, I could touch him. He looks so big under the water, I felt like I could have stood up inside of him. You know, and then, and then, and then, I look down, and, and at the ocean floor, there's this dark spot, and it gets, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then until it turns into the mouth from my nightmares. And, it, it, and, and, and this, this open mouth just comes up, and, it, and, and, and Sally, Sally the shark soars just up past the cage, and she just sort of grabs at the, at the tuna head. And it's so quiet, and it is so beautiful. It's so beautiful, and it is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. And I wasn't afraid, you know? And um, that evening, uh, I had a friend who just happened to be in Cape Town at the same uh, time as me on a business trip. And, um, and we arranged to have dinner at a restaurant uh, during the waterfront, at the waterfront. And um, so uh, it's a little about after seven o'clock and the sun's come down and, and I start walking towards it and it's about a mile walk. And, um, and uh, uh, like as I'm walking, this homeless guy just starts walking next to me and he says, do you have any money? And I only had big bills on me. So I'm like, I'm, like, I'm sorry, man, I, I don't. And, uh, and he keeps walking. Can I have some money? And I'm like, no. And we can I have some money? And I'm like, I'm sorry, no. And then we finally turn a corner, and um, and and there are no people, and it's a dark street. And he gives me a little shove, and he says, he says, don't do anything fucking stupid. And he motions down, and he's holding like a a, a shiv, like a filed down piece, like a spike. And um, there is nowhere for me to go. And he is younger and more fit than me, I wasn't going to run away. So I said, fuck you. Fuck you, you asshole. You fucking piece of shit. Don't get me wrong, I gave him my money. I'm not an idiot, you know? But, like, all I could do was just curse at him. I'm like, I hope you drown in shit, you know? And I give him my money, and and, and he holds the knife up, and he 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 says, give me your keys. And I said, fuck off. And he does. He leaves, and I'm standing there on the sidewalk, and I'm just, I'm, sh- I'm shaking. I'm so full of adrenaline, and I am feeling so many things at once, you know? And um, the one thing, the one thing that I am not feeling at that moment, though, is fear. Because that guy who just threatened to kill me That was just Tim, you know? That was just Sally. Thanks. That was Drew Prohaska. Drew is a two-time Moth Story Slam winner who has been featured on the Risk, Deer Show, and Audible Stories in Session podcasts. A graduate of the Tisch School of Art's dramatic writing program, Drew's writing was regularly featured on the website of Running With Scissors author Augustin Burroughs. He lives in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with his dog, Lula. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor.
This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. As you might remember from science class, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up your DNA. Well, that's where 23andMe.com, a genetic testing service, gets its name. 23andMe allows you to have access to information about your DNA. You can find out how your genes may influence your health, your ancestry, and even physical traits with over 65 online genetic reports personalized to you. So, how does 23andMe work? You simply purchase a kit on their website, 23andMe.com. When the test arrives at your home, you provide a saliva sample by spitting into a tube, the best part, and then you send it back. Once your DNA has been analyzed, you'll get to learn more about what makes you, you. We are all genetically 99.5% the same. Wouldn't you like to know more about what's in that last 0.5% that makes you unique? With 23andMe, you can. To order your kit today, visit 23andMe.com slash Collider. That's the number 23andme dot com slash Collider. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Heather Cucolo. It was recorded in November 2016 at the Hilton New Orleans Riverside in New Orleans, Louisiana. The theme was criminology. This show was produced in partnership with Springer Nature's Before the Abstract podcast, which you can find at beforetheabstract.com. I graduated law school and I was 27 years old and I was young and blonde and wide-eyed and ready to embrace the profession and basically save the world. So I went into a small litigation firm in New York City uh, where we did personal injury work. And it became very clear to me very quickly that A, that was not the job for me, but B, more importantly was, rather than embrace the world, I really got to understand the world a little better, and especially how I was being perceived, and how the perceptions of me based upon my appearance and based upon what people assumed I was capable of very much played into the belief as to whether or not I would be a competent attorney or whether or not I would do the best job for my client. Uh, This became quite clear because oftentimes when I would walk into courtrooms, uh, I would hear whispers from sort of the old boys club, and these were sort of the older white males with gray hair uh, that would stand there and say, isn't that cute that they sent their paralegal in? And wow, you know, the judge is going to be happy with that one. Uh, And so that was sort of an understanding of, again, how it was assumed that I certainly couldn't be an attorney, and if I was an attorney, I certainly was not going to be very competent in my job. Well, I lasted about a year, maybe less, and I decided again that no, my passion is not, again, helping people who have been hit by an automobile, but my passion is to make a difference in the world and to help those who truly need representation, and so I decided to work with sex offenders. And I went to the New Jersey Public Defender's Office, and I had an interview, And this was in the civil commitment unit on sex offender civil commitment. And in 20 states in the federal government, uh, after an offender has served their time in prison, these states and the federal government uh, have 
enacted statutes to commit them, meaning they're in civil commitment, indefinite commitment, based upon the fact that they have committed an offense and that they are suffering from a mental abnormality or personality disorder. And they are therefore, there's a connection that means that they're going to then be highly likely to commit future acts of sexual violence. So I decided that this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. And I went for the interview. And it was a wonderful interview. I think I was the only person that actually came to the interview saying, this is what I want to do. I want to work representing sex offenders. Uh, and the interview concluded. And I was asked whether or not I was going to get pregnant anytime soon. Now, I believe that that was because they were so impressed with me that they wanted to make sure that they weren't going to lose me. But again, regardless, young, maybe 28, 29 years old, um, and apparently that's what we do. We're going to get pregnant. Um, and I can't be an attorney and pregnant at the same time. So I got the job, clearly, because <laughs> the ADA would have forced me to get the job no matter what. Um, and I got the job, and I went running right into it. I had my first case in court, and I won the first case. You don't win these cases. You lose. You expect to lose. You walk in, I'm going to lose. Well, I won this case, and I went back to the office, and they said, oh, well, aren't, weren't you lucky? You know, oh, that, good, that was luck. Definitely luck. There's no way, you know, otherwise the judge must have taken pity on you. Well, I'm pretty sure that I won the case because the judge, who was a 60-something male who was one of two judges who would have heard every single sex offender civil com commitment case in the state of New Jersey, looked at me and didn't expect me to do anything on cross-examining the psychiatrist. And when I walked up with the Diagnostic Statistical Manual DSM and started questioning them on the diagnoses, I think the judge was just so shocked and blown away, like, well, you know what, we got to release this guy. I mean, that, that's just the end of it. Again, the perception. So in that sense, that perception worked for me in many ways. But what had occurred and what I realized was that it seemed to me that my colleagues and the experts that I talked to and the treaters in the institution were all very, seemed to be very concerned about my ability to handle these very difficult uh, scenarios. And am I going to be able to deal with these extreme sexually uh, in, infused types of crimes and situations? Could I tell the 70-year-old female judge what anal beads were? Yes, yes I could. Um, and But again, this concept, this idea that I was delicate or that I was fragile, that I wouldn't be able to handle these types of cases. And this continued throughout sort of my representation of my clients. And I would get questions such as, well, aren't you afraid that your client's going to hit on you? Aren't you afraid that your client's going to be attracted to you or do something inappropriate? Of course, understanding that sex offenders is a wide range of individuals, most of my clients really would not have been interested in me anyway. Um, but again, that was the belief that somehow I was going to be sexually assaulted or uh, treated poorly by my clients. In fact, though, my clients didn't care that I was young and they didn't care that I was blonde and they didn't care that I wore skirts instead of a pantsuit. What they cared about was that I was empathetic and that I cared about the predicament they were in, even though they were seen as the 
worst individuals of society, the lowest of humans. And I cared. I cared about their past, their histories, how they were suffering, what they were going through. Well, two stories. I had a client who was not allowed to have female attorneys. This is what I heard. Now, again, my office was so poorly staffed, and it was where they sent the bad attorneys, so if you were in trouble, you had to go represent sex offenders. So nobody really paid all that much attention. Now, there were some great attorneys, don't get me wrong, but nobody paid that much attention. As soon as I heard that this client wasn't allowed to have female attorneys, when no one was looking and we were so understaffed, I just snatched that case up um, because I was curious. Well, I ended up having a really great rapport with this client. Um, I, wor- I, would, I intended to work very hard to help him sort of get through treatment. And one of the things that we talked about was that when he was having these fantasies, these desires, these feelings, that he should write it down in a letter because he was afraid to share it in treatment because anything you say in treatment is going to be entered into court. So there's no confidentiality. And I said, if you need to share these things, you write them in a letter, seal it, legal mail, and you send it to me at least you're able to sort of express it. And that was that. Well, for whatever reason, uh, there was sort of a spotlight on me and a spotlight on the clients, and, a, and, and, a, and as I learned later, a concern for my safety and well-being. So the Department of Corrections, who ran the safety and, uh, and care of the institution, claimed that one day they found one of his letters that was open. So they opened the letter and they read it and it contained these thoughts or these fantasies. And immediately they told the Department of Human Services and the treaters and it all went that they, I cannot represent this individual because he is writing fantasies to me. Now the fantasies had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with anything in reality, to be honest with you. Um, but again, the client was removed from my caseload. And I remember going back into the institution and they said, aren't you glad that we're looking out for you? No. Well, it works both ways. So in the sense that, again, I was constantly seen as someone who was delicate, fragile, you know, not someone tough enough to be able to handle this population, those types of perceptions also work on the other side. And I had a client who was one of the first individuals to be civilly committed in the state of New Jersey. He was very special to them. They did not want to let him go. He was young. He committed his offenses when he was really, uh, it was a pure uh, offense, a sex assault. And he was, I think, on the cusp of like 17 or 18 when this occurred. And he had been incarcerated and then in civil commitment ever since. And at this point, I think he had been, uh, when I got his case, he'd probably been institutionalized now or, or in the civil commitment center for, I'd say, about nine years, 10 years. Uh, and again, I took this client on and I won his case. Uh, I won his case, and the institution fought me or fought the court order in not wanting to release him, saying he's not ready, we have to go with this. Well, we had a number of hearings arguing this, and at one of the hearings, the judge dismissed everyone but me and the uh, head of the Department of Human Services. And now, In hindsight, I should have said, no, anything you say should be said in front of my client. But I allowed this to happen. Um, And the judge said, you know, let me tell you, this is what I'm worried about. This guy is so good looking that he's going to get released and have all this opportunity for sex. 
And I said, Your Honor, I got to be honest with you. He can have as much sex as he wants, as long as it's consensual and legal. Again, though, this perception that somehow this was going to heighten his risk or somehow this was going to be a problem for him because he was attractive and because therefore women were going to be attracted to him, which I guess in turn would make him want to assault them sexually. Um, well, anyway, so that was one of the instances. So we fought and fought this case. Um, in Sex offender civil commitment therapy, it is recommended that it's a group therapy situation and individualized therapy is oftentimes seen not to be beneficial. So it's, we're going into maybe eight, nine months of continuous hearings, continuous fightings to have the court order recognized so that my client would be released. And the one of a high-ranking female psychologist decides that she's gonna start doing individualized therapy with my client. I'm thrilled. Uh, they start doing therapy for a couple months, and she comes into court with an order saying that it's time for him to be released. Wonderful. Great. So my client's released. And about a month or two months later, uh, I get called into the facility, back into the institution from the office, for a meeting. And the meeting is because one of the corrections officers who was moonlighting at the Jersey Shore in New Jersey uh, as a private security allegedly took pictures and witnessed my client and this female therapist holding hands and kissing as they were walking along the boardwalk. Well, the female therapist was soon after fired, let go, and my client was brought back into the institution under the uh, under the guise that he had, I think, driven with a suspended license. Um, and so he was brought back into the civil commitment setting institution. And basically the whole focus of his treatment from that point on was the fact that he had manipulated this high-ranking female psychologist who was married with children into having this affair with her and thus ruining her life. Um, and he's still there today. And this was about five, six years ago now. So... In addition, though, it, it is very clear and it makes so much sense when we're looking at sort of how we judge people based upon their labels, how we judge people based upon their appearance and how we make improper judgments and improper opinions that are not beneficial to any aspect of finding sort of the truth and the worth in each and every one of us. Thanks. That was Heather Kukolo. Heather is an adjunct professor at New York Law School and the current director of New York Law School's online mental disability law program. She has contributed to the development of courses for the program as well as assisted in collaboration with Asia-Pacific partners to foster international distance learning. Her academic work has afforded her wonderful opportunities such as addressing mental disability law issues at the United Nations and allowing her to travel domestically and internationally to lecture and teach. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb in the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. 
Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Weck, Darren Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall and the Hilton New Orleans Riverside for hosting these shows, and to Sharks for killing fewer people every year than champagne corks do. Thanks for listening. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big